This is Cade Massey. Just a quick note about the podcast version of the show this week. We have our third ever overtime segment. We got to our second guest, Brian Burke, who we love and didn't have enough time with. So Shane and I kept on talking to him after the end of this Sirius XM show. If you want to stick around, you'll get another 10 or 15 minutes, mostly on the Ravens. Mostly we talk about the Baltimore Ravens and what that tells us about football more generally. But we do a little bit of extra with Brian Burke in the overtime segment this week. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the first episode of 2024 on Wharton Moneyball. This is Cade Massey hosting this bright and beautiful Tuesday morning with my longtime friend and colleague, Shane Jensen. We are standing in for the full group. Adi and Eric are out doing Adi and Eric think they'll be back. They will be back. But on this first day of 2024 and after a couple weeks absence, we figured we'd just settle in and talk a little football, both varieties of a of North American football, both college and pro, because there is so much going on right now. Um, and to do to do that, we've, we're bringing in a couple of guests. We've got guests on both halves of t- today's show, this week's show. A little unusual that we bring in a guest on the first half, but we thought, what the heck? We just watched some spectacular entertainment yesterday in college football world after a fun few weeks and at near the end of a spectacular season. So we'll indulge a little extra Bill Conley. How does that sound to you guys? A little extra Bill Conley. <laughs> Anyone ever turned down a little extra Bill C? I assume so. Uh, <laughs> through the years, I'm pretty sure. Yes. I, somewhere, that, that's somewhere that's happened. Case. That's right. All right, Bill hasn't happened around here. And we're, you can't account for everybody's taste out there. That's right. <laughs> So we're going we're gonna to talk with Bill C. here in just a minute. You guys can reach us on uh, Twitter. It's probably the best way, at WMoneyBall is our Twitter handle, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet occasionally about the world of sports, sports analytics. We'd love to hear from you. Give us feedback. Give us questions. Give us suggestions. Give us criticisms. Whatever you got, we're interested. At WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter. Our guest today is active on Twitter. You can find him. Uh, ESPN underscore Bill C. I'm guessing is the is the yep. handle. Do I have that right? At ESPN underscore Bill C. Bill is a staff writer at ESPN. Now he gets he gets kind of the front page treatment ESPN for all matters college football, which is <laughs> just wonderful. He is the creator of S and P Plus. I think I have to call that something else now that he is the ESPN. But we're going to keep on calling it S and P Plus. Maybe it's supposed <laughs> to be SP Plus or something. Yeah, <laughs> um, cease and desist on that uh, ampersand there. Okay, no uh, ampersands. No, Bill, right. Bill C without the ampersand. <laughs> Bill has been at the forefront of college football analytics for a big part of his career, and wonderfully has advanced the conversation. You hear all kinds of people now reference that and. That's making people smarter. We always enjoy talking to Bill. Bill, I got so much. I got so much. I got so much. Uh, I could, I could ramble with you for a while. We let's just see if we can figure out um, what makes sense to us today. Just got to get your reactions. I'm sure you watched six plus hours of college football yesterday. It did not disappoint. How did you when you woke up this morning? When you went to bed last night? What were you thinking about? <laughs> 
Well, you know, Iowa, Tennessee disappointed. I think that's safe to say. But um, oh, I'm sorry, there was other there were other games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a particularly dicey bowl season in that regard. We still got some good ones, obviously, but uh, I guess the important news is that the big two were both very, very good. Second straight year, actually. I actually, for my takeaways piece th- uh, this morning, I was I realized I can now actually complete a ten best games of the playoff era list oh. because we've had like eleven good games now in in ten years. <laughs> The other, the other 18, not so much, but you know, we've got 11, so we can make a list out of that now. There's a top third. Okay. Well, uh, we're about to be given more choices going forward. So we're going to get some, we're going to get some more games and we should acknowledge there were other bowl games. I am totally that person this year who had a team in the final four and kind of neglected the rest. Plus (laughs) with the four and with opt out, um, overtaking the sport, the rest of the college football games do really change in character than they used to be. And it's only going to become more that way with the bigger with the bigger playoff field in the future. But Bill, we have to say congrats on the Cotton Bowl win. You right. wanted Ohio State. You got Ohio That's State. Right. And y'all took care of Ohio State. Quarterback or no quarterback, y'all took care of Ohio State. So congrats on that. Yeah, that was um it took the third stringer, I think. If Devin Brown's in there, well, I don't know. It would have been it would have come down to the wire, I think, if Devin Brown was hadn't gotten hurt in the first quarter. But um yeah, no, it was it was I mean, it's fun. Look, the the guys on the field really care, especially for games like that, especially for teams like Missouri and Ole Miss and and some of the teams that aren't there every year. Um, you know, I think that's the main takeaway from bowl season this year, especially is a lot of these, a lot of these coaches, a lot of these teams figured out like, okay, we're missing player A, B, and C, uh, but we're going to have 11 guys on the field trying to beat the the 11 guys on the other side. Let's just, let's go about it. It's, it's not going to be very helpful for predictive uh, ratings systems, uh, because this isn't going to be the same team you just saw for 12 games, but you know, when both teams cared and when both teams weren't so handicapped by opt-outs that they were, you know, playing their third string against Georgia, for instance, um, we still got a, a good number of good games, even if they weren't all quite good. Well, um, I mean, Missouri had a great season and Missouri is not, I don't think what most people think about when they think about the SEC and yet they've really done quite well. There are a number of programs who would take Missouri's record um, since they joined the conference and, um, and we're back in the same conference now, Bill. So we'll talk more rivalry, (laughs) Missouri, Texas. I know you love those Texas games uh, in the future, (laughs) Um, but you just talked about predictions and that's really what I've been thinking about that. And I think, I mean, we all, all of us, Shane's in the business, you're in the business, I'm in the business, making predictions. And I, you know, I think people who don't do it as much may not understand why we care so much. It's because it, it tests your understanding of the game. Yeah. Like you can't make good predictions unless you understand the game, whatever your prediction world is, financial markets, politics, or college football. And the way to, test your understanding because we all think we know a little something is to okay make your prediction and then keep track of it and make enough of them to build up a record and oh and by the way it changes over time and so just when you think you have enough to understand uh you need to keep on going because the world shifted so this this playoff year was a particularly rich one because the four teams all had a reasonable chance so we, we traded text over the holidays bill says he's had a have a hard time coming up with who he thinks is going to win the thing because you can kind of make a case for anybody. And it made for fascinating analysis. And what it jumped out to me most, and this is kind of what I want to hear from you guys about, is that there was so much storytelling about what was going to happen. And I come from this tradition in psychology, decision-making tradition in psychology that is super skeptical of these stories. 
there, it goes back to Robin Dawes and the robust beauty of linear models. You don't need fancy models to predict well. In fact, generally, the simpler model, the better your predictions. And yet humans don't work that way. Humans like complicated, colorful, twisty, interesting stories. And you give people three weeks to look at a couple of interesting matchups. And oh, my goodness gracious, we're going to hear some stories. And I think this, I think this might have been, here's a claim, <laughs> peak college football storytelling. We just hit peak college football storytelling because we're never again going to have three weeks to stare at the matchups. It's never, you're never going to have this much time. We've heard maximum number of stories per game. We've just come through it. And the reason I'm belaboring this is I want to know what we've learned, what we've learned <laughs> about good stories, BS stories, what stories about these two matchups after the fact, do we think we're actually good? What were pretty compelling, but proved to not be very good. And how, in the forecasting business, we kind of have to tell stories. It's not, you know, you and I have learned, Bill, hard, hard, hard lessons. People don't want to just know numbers. They'll listen to your numbers much more readily and for a longer period of time if you've got a story behind them. And so you, you, people in your business, you've got a model. Bill's got a model. He's going to sell you numbers. But he realizes to sell you numbers, he's got to tell a story around those numbers. And by the way, that means Bill's gotten to know football much better over the last 10 years. He goes and talks to freaking coaches in their offices in the offseason, and he can talk in detail now. But it's all elaborating his fundamental model, and he revises his model as a result. Anyway, we have to learn to tell stories, but we have to tell stories that are more likely to be true. What have we learned, Bill? What have we learned about <laughs> storytelling and forecasting? What did, what's it, what it, through that lens, how do you interpret what we just saw yesterday? Well, I didn't feel pretty good about the fact that, you know, it took overtime, uh, but people did notice that SP Plus had Michigan winning by nine and they won by seven. Uh, so that was good. <laughs> uh, it was it was interesting, though. This, That's a different topic, Bill. That's know, luck. That's the topic of luck. <laughs> right. well, you know, it took it took 3,800 special teams miskies for them to not win by 14 in, in That's regulation. Right. That's but right. That's anyway, right. but no, I think um, this was a nice reminder. The Alabama-Michigan game, it was funny, the more time – we went without a game, the more people seem to be reverting to this is old Alabama versus this is old Michigan. Uh, the Michigan that got blown out by Georgia a couple of years ago, that's this Georgia, or this, that's this Michigan in Alabama. They just beat Georgia. It's the same old Alabama. And as it turned out that the sample size of like two games that people were drawing that from the sample size of the 2023 regular season meant a lot more. And the fact that Michigan was superior and it really did take some, Michigan was fourth in my special teams SP plus ratings. It took like the worst special team performance of the Jim Harbaugh era for them to not win by, you know, one to two scores in regulation. They were the superior team. I missed the, all the debriefs on that. I was distracted after that game. I missed the debriefs on that. Did 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 he give? Was there some press conference time on that? Has someone written the piece? Is there going to be an explanation for what exactly the hell was going on with their punt return team? Oh my god! Yeah, no. I mean, he even had you know his hands guy in at the very very end, and he almost he almost muffed a punt for a safety in the final minute of regulation. Okay, fine. Muffing it is one thing, but trying to feel the dang thing on the five yeah. yard line is another. It's like yeah, you're not you're not you know. no yeah, just get out of the way. You're not doing anything with the ball that last thirty seconds. But no, I, I, it was it was mind blowing, and um and I'm empowered at Michigan for basically saying, you know what, we will sacrifice our great special teams unit just to prove how superior. No, but <laughs> right, but no, it it was. Um, 
you know, teams, teams do change over time. And the fact that Michigan was number one in SP plus now they're number two, because the, the model saw Georgia beat Florida state by 60. Georgia oh must be amazing. Oh, and they're no, number one no, no, we can't update based on that. We can't update based on the bulls this year. I know. But, um, but no, I mean, the, the model saw that this was a different Michigan team and it turned out that this was a different Michigan team. And, and that was, that was good. We can't just rely on tropes uh, and, and two games a year or whatever. Right. I mean, you know, in college football, there, there is an institutional factor and it, you, it shows up in priors mattering a lot in a model. Yeah. There does seem to be just carryover. If, you know, beyond coaching even for some institutions. <laughs> and, and so it's hard to know how much weight to put on that, but this you're, you're, you're talking about it that way illustrates that models are stories and stories. Yep. We can, we can model any story. You give me a story. I can turn around a bill and he can write down a model for it. You want, you want, you want the quarterback to be the most important factor. Great. We can separate that out from the offense and we can put a lot of weight on that. Yep. You think what matters really here is that that supposedly great Washington offensive line has never faced such a strong defensive line as Texas. Great. <laughs> right. We'll take that matchup and we'll we'll put those next to each other. And we'll, that's an interaction term, and we'll put some weight on it. Yep. And now we've modeled your story, but we've also made a more complicated model. Yeah, and man, that's a beautiful story. It doesn't make for a great predictive model in most cases. I, I thought it was really interesting too. You know, for all I could say about how Michigan ranks the first in my defensive ratings and this and that, they're the best team overall. They got to the end of the season. They got through 13 games without really having played a single mobile quarterback. And because this is college football and we get 12 or 13 games instead of 82 or 162 or whatever, we had no idea if that was a thing or not. There was absolutely no way of telling if that mattered or not. And in the end, it, yeah. I mean, it kind of did. Miller had some good runs, but in the end, they they held Alabama to exactly what was projected in terms of uh, Alabama's offensive production. So it, you know, took Michigan, ma- it took Michigan's offense overtime to hit the offensive production or projection, but it nailed the defensive projection. So I thought that was cool. And I thought it was cool that, you know, everybody was bagging on Michigan's schedule. Well, we adjust for opponent in these models. There are 14 kajillion ways to do it, but you still, you're not just looking at raw numbers and saying, Hey, this defense must be great. You're adjusting for opponent. And the fact that they were still number one mattered. Okay. Two things there. One on your point about, you know, they've only played 12 games or 13 in some cases, and they haven't played much, you know, across the conference. We just can't say this is something that makes college football almost uniquely among the major <laughs> sports fun. It's like the opposite of like a basketball, late regular season NBA conversation. By that yeah. point, you kind of know what you got. In this case, you genuinely don't know what you got. And so it may, there's a lot of room for good models. There's a lot of room for expertise. There's a lot of room for speculation. Um, the other thing that you just mentioned that that is a story and and in this case, in, well, in this case, you get conflicting evidence from yesterday. Does does winning a lot of close games matter? Does, is that what? No, it's more than that. It's like, what's the sign on that? Yeah. Because the storytellers say the sign is positive, and the analysts say, well, the sign's negative. Because if you're a really good team, you're not going to be in a lot of great games. What year was it? Early 2000 that Ohio State was undefeated, but they won like all these. O two, yeah. Games. O two, and was it Miami in the? in the yep. national championship game. And everyone was like, Oh, these guys are gritty and they win. So they win when they have to win. And the others were like, no, they're, they're, they're just not as good a team. Yep. Okay. So we had two examples yesterday. Washington comes through undefeated. They win a ton of close games. Some absurd thing. Like yesterday might've been the 11th one score. It, it was the 10th. Yeah. It was the 10th straight game within 10 points. I think was the, 
uh, was the <laughs> nugget they were going with there. All right. And so it's like, okay, is that gritty goodness, a bunch of seniors, a bunch of team character, all that stuff, culture, or is that not very good, especially when you're playing in the Pacific Northwest? And then flip it around, Michigan, I mean, I'm, I was susceptible to this story. They haven't had to do it in clutch against anybody. Yep. They just haven't been there. Are you kidding me? How are they going to respond? And um, I don't know that we answered those stories, but we definitely got one more piece of evidence for both of those stories in, in different directions. Yeah. 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 No, in um, the one score game thing, especially it's like, I can a real fun shorthand when you get to the end of the year is to look at, you know, who went six and oh in one score games. Well, guess what? They're not going to, they're going to magically fail to meet expectations next year, whatever the bar is set at Missouri. I, I'm Missouri went four and oh in those one score games this year. And and so they're going to be like a preseason top 10 or 12 team oh, next no. year. Oh, That's going to be hard. That's going to be hard. To, my <laughs> yeah. only lot, my only way to rationalize that is three of those wins were early in the year when they weren't very good yet. And then they started actually kind of, <laughs> there you go. so that's what I'm running with. That's what I'm going to non-state Stationarity can be your friend, Bill. It's dangerous, right. but it can be your friend. But it's, yeah, if you just use shorthand or my second order wins that I kind of just culled from baseball, basically, uh, to come up with like, a, you know, like SP plus, I can say that SP plus basically sees Washington as an 11 and three team because they played so many toss ups. And on average, they probably overachieved <laughs> and therefore on average, they'll fall back next year. But then I just pulled up the one score records for everybody in college football the last 10 years. Number one, Ohio State. Number two, Clemson. Alabama's fourth, Georgia's fifth. The really good teams win the close games also. So mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. now Michigan State's third. That's a that's an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's a mix of coaching and talent and having just the right quarterback play and probably special teams and also blind luck at you know exactly. and, and randomness. What a and, what a bundle you just described. What a bundle. My and so yeah, you can you really can no matter how much I mean I've I've written billions of words about college football in the last 10 years and and you can still see whatever you want to see from that. Uh, yeah. which is fun and also kind of maddening but then fun again sometimes. Okay, so let's do a couple of specifics about these games, and then let's transition to the final, which is coming up a week from yesterday. Um, I, I, I saw this stat somewhere, and it troubled me greatly. <laughs> it might have come for your, from your column. But if, if I could flip one stat and have confidence in turning over the outcome of the game, the Texas-Washington game yesterday, it would have been this stat. The number of starts going to the game for the two quarterbacks <laughs> – Penix had 48 starts, or that was going to be his 48th. I forget which. Ewers, 22. And college football is a place where an, exper- an experienced quarterback of some level, it doesn't have to be great, but he can't mm-hmm. be poor. But of, co- of course he can't be poor. But some level, starting quarterback is a real difference maker. And if if you – how do you think that game would have gone differently if Ewers – we'll never see him with 48 college starts, but if we did – Ewers with 48 starts, Penix with 22. We saw him with 22. We can go back and look at it. Different uh, uh, agility guy, but all the same. My claim is that's the one factor that you could be quite <laughs> confident would have flipped the game. But so um, if we're looking for, if you're looking for storylines to hang your hat on, I think in college football experience, quarterback is a pretty good one. Yeah, and it's and that's also a fun balance because the experience, the most experienced guys are usually good, but that's not. Right amazing otherwise they would have left after two years but but bill on this point there's an interaction god you know this is the thing you could pull right into the complicated (laughs) stories there's an interaction with this you know experience and say the type of quarterback so a real dual threat quarterback can do a lot more damage 
as a freshman than a <laughs> traditional quarterback can do as a freshman. Yep. So that experience factor is more important for the traditional guys because a lot of it's just knowing the system, being able to get through the progressions, having been able to call out of getting getting out of bad plays at the line of scrimmage, all that kind of stuff. Mm. But then Penix is more than that. Penix is oh, yeah. that real time playmaking. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, his um, I mean, Penix ended up being kind of a unicorn because of his injury, his massive injury list. He didn't go. He's still around. And, and you know, even after last year, his draft stock wasn't he had a spectacular year, but his draft stock really he still could have gone if he wanted to. There was something pulling him back. Um, But, yeah, I mean, if he was this good in 2019 as a whatever he was then in Indiana, sophomore, red, whatever he was. Um, if he was this spectacular, then he would have already been gone. But it took kind of that mix of injuries. And, and meanwhile, he just got better. Uh, he got smarter. He got healthier. Uh, you could tell yesterday, too, um, you know, November, Michael Penix Jr. was banged up. And it's what, you know, it's state mm-hmm. secrets now with injuries. So it was just mm-hmm. rumors on the internet. Like his, he had a bad rib, rib injury against Oregon mm-hmm. and all this. We didn't really know what we were dealing with, but you watched November Penix and then you watched yesterday's Penix bouncing around in the pocket, um, you know, just <laughs> looking like he has good ribs and, and good torque. He was an unbelievable quarterback yesterday. Quinn Ewers wasn't even bad. He started, obviously his his early numbers weren't amazing, but he really played his way into the game. You could say maybe that was part of the experience thing is it took him a while to find the rhythm. Um, but he's still, I mean, 318 yards. He didn't really throw too many like dangerous passes. That's been kind of the thing with Ewers even this year is once or twice per half, he's going to get baited into something he probably shouldn't try. Um, and he got away with it a lot more this year. He was better at that than, he, you know, last year is just halfway through the season. Opponents started figuring out, oh, you can trick him with A, B, and C. And then then he was very, very ineffective. But this, he was still, his decision-making was still kind of coming along. I thought his decision-making was really good yesterday. It was just, he could not hold a candle to Michael Penix Jr. And he was Penix wasn't getting pressured at all because that offensive line knows how to, how to, how to pass protect like crazy. Well, a couple of things real quickly on that one on Penix props to the Washington staff for running him in the second half because yeah. they hadn't been able to run. They couldn't run on any other way. Nobody expected them to run Penix because he mm-hmm. has been injured and, and this year he's been hurt. So you haven't seen it. It was a valuable tool late in the game. These, oh, yeah. these, these quarterback draws. I want to hear more. We're going to Shane's about to jump in here, but I want to hear more. One, I want to hear, okay, take this quarterback and then project it into the final. What, do you, what does that mean about you know Washington, Michigan? But you just mentioned the offensive line, which is another really interesting story. Super experienced line, and they more or less stoned the Longhorn pass rush last yeah. night. Pretty much stoned them. I mean, not until late in the game could they even sniff Penix, and then Penix could you know was enough to get away from them. Quite the contrast to what they they had Ewers under pressure all night long. Yeah. But the question is, one of the most one of the things that most jumped off the screen in the Alabama game was Michigan's D line oh. getting after Milrow yeah. early and late. I mean, just unbelievably. So it sets up this fascinating combination of okay, we've got that line, which is the best looking unit basically of the four against the offensive line of Washington, which might have been the second best looking unit yeah. of the four. How does that stack up? But before we do that, real quick, Shane. <laughs> well, I just want to jump in basically with the same co- just to follow up on that, just because he, okay, when you originally started talking about the the Washington uh, Texas game, 
you know, it, it sounded like it was sort of you were lamenting the fact that your yours was the quarterback or like that. You, I, I, I saw him as having an excellent game actually as well. It's just that Penix was unbelievable. He was unstoppable. I'm not lamenting. I'm just saying if Penix, if you just flip their experience, Texas would have won that game. That's yeah. my claim. Oh, I mean, that's all. Sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. You were, yeah. The 48 mattered more than the 22 is probably the best way to. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, he played, he played fine. I do that. I think you make a good point about all the teams look sloppy except for Washington, Washington. Now there's an interesting, like someone ought to write that story. It's like, why of the four was there yep. one that came out hitting on all cylinders and all three of the other. Yeah, they just never let up all game, basically. From the, yeah, no, I mean, Texas, from the beginning. Texas played played 11 power conference teams in the regular season, and they led by double digits in the first half against nine of them. Like, those early leads were a massive, massive. Everybody started talking about, you know, game Brips. scripts, you know, whatnot. I even I even got into that in the, in the game preview yeah. uh, beforehand. Uh, and it was. I mean, you just go back and look, and they're averaging – you know, even with Alabama, the twenty-two, the twenty twenty Alabama offense uh, that was pretty much perfect anyway. They were still better in those first fifteen plays. Like it just that's a stark strength, and the fact that Washington led seven nothing early, and then it was only seven seven. That was an enormous deal for Washington, right there. It it was, but it also raises interesting questions because you just said it was the stark strength, but the questions like all of our strengths, of course, have a shadow side, and that is the weakness. Each strength comes with a weakness. <laughs> The weakness is to to the uh, to the unwashed observer fan. It looked like they should have run the ball a hell of a lot more in the first half because <laughs> yeah. you know we could go. I haven't rewatched the game. I haven't looked at the stats, but I, my in memory is like the second series they couldn't win the first series. Maybe not the second, second or third series they just ran it down their throat. It's eight, yeah. ten, twelve yards. A yeah, shot. that's how you move the ball on Washington. Washington's run defense. Well, we knew it is it's, not exactly. Good. It's yeah. not a surprise. They knew that going in, and yeah. yet Bill. Because of the <laughs> damn script, he's sitting there running. You know, he said, "No, no, the seventeenth play is supposed to." He Bill, the next, the first game, the first play in the next series opened empty. They just ran oh, the right. ball down their throat. The very next play, they get the ball. You think, okay, now we're going to run down their throat again? Empty. Unbelievable. Yeah, they were. Baxter this and like, Blue. Baxter and Blue had eighteen carries for one hundred twenty-three yards, like seven yards per carry, about. Um, and they had oh eighteen my God. carries. Eighteen carries. Okay, so Bill, this is my question for you, who's more of a football expert and who talks to coaches. And if you don't know now, please, let's learn something in the offseason. When, okay, you've got this script, but does anybody have kind of a contingent script that says, look, this is what we plan to run. But if we learn something, you know, right. 10 plays into it that reveals something we think is systematic, by the way, especially if we had a theory ahead of time that that was going to be the case, then we're going to deviate from the script or we're going to go yeah. down branch B instead of branch A. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, well, we, why we, aren't we, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, why are scripts more designed to test out what's going on with the right. opposing defense? Yeah. Almost you have a, a by nature a game script that is supposed to kind of almost branch into a flow chart depending on how the defense right. reacts to it. Yeah, I mean, I know with with college coaches especially, they have their call sheet and they basically uh, there's a cool video of Andy Kotelnicki, the Kansas offensive coordinator, who's now going to Penn State. Um, where he basically, he was doing some coach presentation or whatever. And he goes through like, okay, second and six to nine, you're going to have approximately six of these a game. So you need eight plays or wh whatever the numbers are. And and so basically they have their little, you know, possession and 10 plays and their goal line plays and this and that. And so they don't have all that many to begin with. Like, I, I'm sure you can find coaches out there who have 118 plays they can call at any time. But I do think the idea of a script in general, every coach is just, probably pretty different in that regard we kind of I, I bet the 15 plays thing 
comes from Bill Walsh, like finding the winning edge or something as much as anything. Um, and I know some coaches do that or Holmgren. Holmgren was a big scripter, I think. But, but, um, but I do think the script, I think they designed the script to learn something about what they're facing. Right, but right. but I think they're, but the question is, can you ever bring right. forward the action on that? Because if you yeah. learn something six plays in that is true and actionable, then shouldn't you be pushing that button? It reminds me of something a buddy, Brian Ross, a good buddy of mine, played football for four years with the Aggies in the 80s. And we watched some game together a few years ago. And he's like, you know, some of these offensive coordinators, they're just too enamored, essentially, of the – you just made me remember, remember this, but he said 180 plays. They're too enamored of their, of their toolkit. They're right. like, no, I've got this really shiny tool over here on the right hand side. i got to use this tool. But yeah. the guys, you, you know, it's like go back to high school play calling when if they've got a matchup that works, they're going to hit that button over right. and over mercilessly. And I guess, I guess, uh, you know, if you're a, a, an offensive coach who loves the script and really sticks to it, you would say that if you found something on the sixth play, you can either use it on the seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth play, and they adjust to it, or you say, okay, that's going to work. I'll later save it. Too. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's interesting, but then if you never come, then if you right. fall behind and don't right. come if, back, to it. if you get to the ga- the end of the game and you're you average seven yards per carry with your running backs and they didn't even carry the ball twenty yeah. times, yeah. you might have yeah. you, you underestimate you, you got off somewhere in there. Okay, but does the same criticism? I mean, look, I recognize this is. I mean, there's nothing cheaper and older and more ridiculous than the casual fan calling into question the play calling by the offensive coordinator. I get it. <laughs> I'm gonna keep doing it. Uh, Alabama, same thing. They ran it down. I mean, Michigan, they ran it down Alabama's throat early in the yeah. game. And you're, no, 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 they flip it around. That's what we expected to go. And then he called the first series was all passes. If I remember, yeah. Frank McCarthy throws what should have been an interception on the first play of the game, but they were pass, 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 pass. And like, okay, guys, are you just trying to be too cute? <laughs> the whole world expected you to run on them. So you're going to show the world wrong. I mean, what is going on? Why didn't they run the ball more? Yeah, I think, you know, to a certain degree, you're, you can, this is one of those strengths that could become a weakness kind of deals, I guess, but you, you know what they know. And so, you know, that they know that, you know, (laughs) that they know. And so you come out throwing because you think they're going to think you're running and, you know, you can get out of that, uh, you know, out of your mind pretty quickly, I think in the end, but, um, and I'm terrible at chess. So this all makes sense to me overthinking every single step along the way. But no, I mean, it, it was interesting. They come out and McCarthy throws the worst pass of his life on the very first play of the game, barely gets away with it. And and then they're off schedule and everything goes to hell immediately. I did think um, the drive they had. So so there's that. And then Alabama punts and Michigan muffs it. And then Alabama scores. That, that was the opening yeah. sequence there. The, the drive they came back with, yeah. uh, so their yeah. second drive was beautiful. Yeah. Um, they mixed, they mixed. to be fair, they, yeah. they mixed, they mixed right. it around. It was two, two quorum runs. Um, let's see, then two passes, then a McCarthy run, then two, and they were, they were going back and forth and, and everything worked and they had Alabama yeah. scattered from sideline to sideline. Um, but it is, and, and never, and don't undervalue the, the, you know, the just random mistakes that happen that yeah, screw everything up and yeah. Texas getting off uh, off schedule a bunch because of the random penalties and stuff, especially yeah. there in that run in like the second quarter, I think. So yeah. There was a lot going on, um, but yes. So so let's, let, <laughs> we could do this, we could do this all day and we and we can't, unfortunately, but I'm going to do a couple more questions for you. Yeah. Um, back to the storytelling idea. One, we can't, one of the reasons people tell too many stories when forecasting is because they tell too many stories when they explain what happens. And we, we, we get so accustomed to explaining every twist and turn. You just did a great job of not doing that, Bill. You just said, look, random stuff happens. Nobody tells stories about the past and say, oh, and then 
a random thing happened. They've always got a, they got a perfect explanation. Yeah. And if you explain the past that way, then you're sure the hell going to forecast that way, which is a real problem. So here's my question for you. What do we not, we need to not overreact to? What do we feel like we learned yesterday that we actually yeah. didn't learn? What stories are being told about yesterday's games that probably are just stories? Um, well, I think when you, you know, comparing my pregame expectations to what actually happened, I think one of the more surprising things was Washington's front was very active. That's been a massive issue for them all year. Um, they're heading into this game. Let me see. They were uh 131st in sacks in sacks per drop back uh they're 112th in pressure rate um on on passing downs only they're 130th in sack rate they got no pressure this year uh that was just nothing they they did not get a push and brandon trice is awesome or he was last year and we thought he was going to be awesome this year and he just it was a really it was a very passive approach for them and then trice is making plays downfield recovering fumbles i think and just like he was everywhere yesterday and that was awesome but that was if we're looking for things that that doesn't automatically mean, well, I guess Washington's front is great and they're going to be great against Michigan. Michigan's going to try to maul them and it might work. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Like I, I, the, I'm trying to think like the fact that Washington was able to pass, I, that didn't surprise me. Um, they ran probably about as well as I thought they would or not well as I thought they would. Um, but that was probably the main that in Michigan special teams. I know everybody in the country thinks Michigan has the worst special teams in the country. Now they don't, I, I can't explain what happened yesterday, but they are very, very good in pretty much all special teams categories over the course of 14 games. So okay. those are probably the two things that, that we're going to overreact to that might, that might've been fool's gold yesterday. Great. Because it leads to the next question, which is okay. What is the forecast for next Monday and how can we, learn from whatever mistakes we may or may not have made and the stories we told or listened to or believed going into this weekend and not make those mistakes for next time. You've just said two possibilities. They both go in Michigan's favor. Yeah. By the way. You said, yeah. don't overreact to the great game that Washington's defensive line had and don't overreact to the tragically bad, ridiculous, unexplainable <laughs> special teams performance by the Wolverines. Both those go in Michigan's favor. I also want to hear you talk about the quarterback situation because back yeah. to the number of starts now Penix has 49 or 48 or whatever the number is. <laughs> and McCarthy, I am short that man. I love his wheels. I don't trust a guy who's supposed to be able to throw a great ball when he needs to, but he hasn't had to. I want to, I want the guy who's throwing a good <laughs> ball when he has needed to. And my God, Penix is, that was the best game of his career. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, he was um, on, it, it made me so happy to see his story is so good. And it made me it so is, happy. That, it is. I know it, it made is, you less, I know it made you less happy, but and Bill, it, also, it was, People talk about people. People talk about the beauty of the ball he throws, and it is oh. different, isn't it? We need to get. We need a. We need a physicist or someone with the motion tracking devices to come out and talk about how these different quarterbacks have these different balls. Because Penix is is ridiculous. Is there anybody? I mean, God bless the Huskies fans. They must have had so much fun watching this guy play for them, especially last night. It's just a. It's just a work of art. Okay, so. Okay, put all those pieces together for us, Bill. Michigan, Michigan, uh, Washington on the eighth. SP plus uh, has been pretty, pretty right about Michigan for, for, you know, obviously there were, there was some weirdness early on and then, and so on, but these last few weeks, it's, it's been about right on Michigan. Um, it has, ha it has, however, been 
you know, it got distracted by the fact that they barely beat Washington, barely beat a bad Arizona state, barely beat a bad uh, Stanford team um, or, you know, beat them by nine uh, underachieved against Washington state kind of underachieved against Oregon state and, and Utah too. Just they, they fell, their rating fell pretty dramatically. And then they overachieved projections by 11 points against Oregon and by 12 points against Texas, because you know, whatever was holding Penix back, he got McMillan back. He has ribs again, apparently. Um, and, and he was, they're, they're a better team than SP plus says. So keep that in mind when I say that Michigan is projected to win by 12.3, that is oh a God. huge number. Um, Jeez. And, and so I would, per, I would adjust that and say, maybe that should be more like eight or like seven, eight, but four and a half is still too low. I think I, I would have Michigan better than that. And I do think they're going to maul Washington's front. That's going to be Washington's mm. overcome that all year, <laughs> but it's yeah. going to be particularly hard to overcome that against that defense. I think. Yeah. Okay. You, you alluded to the line, open at four and a half Michigan, by four and a half. Um, okay, Bill. So you're not buying this is this, the, the culture of the 2023 Washington Huskies, man. They, the old guys know how to win. They believe in I, each other. I want them to win. I really do. I'm just not going to say it's going to happen. <laughs> okay. You believe in McCarthy or you say McCarthy doesn't have to throw a pass. This is whenever I That's saw right. Texas run down the field on these guys, Texas has, you know, three quarters of the running game that, Mich- that Michigan does. I thought Texas loses this game. The Wolverines rush for 400 yards on this team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's going to be big. And I mean, it, it bears mentioning that when Michigan for the first time all year faced this small sample alert, but when they faced for the first time all year, an actual you have to score now situation, they went straight down the field and almost scored too quickly. Um, like they now there was a tipped pass in there, <laughs> you know, the Roman, the leaping Roman Wilson. So I don't want to say they executed perfectly, but and they had to convert a fourth down even. But I do think McCarthy, they looked confident. They didn't look frazzled. Um, the fourth down play, they they made it without hesitation and it worked beautifully. Um, I, I, I don't want to overreact to small samples uh, and, okay. and, and and whatever, but we've had one example all year where they had to score and they scored. And they basically, for, for the last five minutes of the game and regulation, they averaged 11 yards per play at Alabama's three. Uh, so that was not conclusive, but it, it was certainly, you know, whatever you can take from that was good. A challenge a little bit. I, I hear what you're saying. Of course, this can be fun to think about this for the next week. But if you had to allocate weight across the four principal units on the football, passing, rushing, offense, defense, mm-hmm. in some model. I said stories can be models. Models are stories. <laughs> We're telling a story about what's most important. Yep. And so I'm asking you to allocate weights to the coefficients on those four factors. We're going to take you know take each team or take the difference in each team or whatever you want. But you've got four weights on rushing offense rushing defense passing offense passing defense relative importance of those four units in predicting a football game and the real question is how much bigger is passing offense than everything else right the reason i'm saying all this of course is because washington has dramatically better passing offense than michigan does yep well, and, and i mean obviously i think the weights are applicable to the game to, to the game at hand because you know every team's different and Michigan will run the ball more than most. Uh, so in this game, I think the most important units are going to be, um, we're going to say Michigan's pass defense, which the whole, like the whole, how, how they choose to try to get to Penix is the number one question I have in this game. Not even does it work, but how do you even go about it when nobody touches him, but they can pretty much 
touch anybody in the backfield. Yeah. Like yeah. How, how they go right. about that is going to yes. be really, really interesting. But I would yep. say Michigan's pass defense, Washington's run defense. Yeah. Is more is going to be more important than Washington's pass defense, and that's a problem because their pass defense is better than their run defense. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I, I, it, it is different here. I, I understand the the argument clearly that Penix is better than McCarthy, and like I said, I love this Washington and, team. So I and, hope that makes and, a difference. And the argument that globally, not in yep. this matchup, but globally, right. pass offense is the most important factor. Right. Uh, more in the pros now. More in the pros. Uh, the yes, college. more in the but pros. Yeah, it, it clearly it still matters. I I I, I do think McCarthy's good. And I do think he was also hurt at the end of the year, and they still scored more than most on the best defenses in the country at the end of the year. So I mean, I, 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 Michigan's really, really, really good, is what I'm saying. And I, and McCarthy's really good. Penix is better, but I think that doesn't flip the edge to Washington. I think it's still. Yeah. Did uh, you say? Did you say in your column that you thought if the matchups were differently, you were going to take the winner? You were going to take yeah, yeah. You're going to take the winner this game to win no right. matter what. I, I'm going to keep at one point. At one point, you did. Yeah, basically, I said um, because I couldn't decide between Michigan or Alabama, I felt heading into the semis, Texas had the best odds of the title. Uh, but once that winner was settled, I was going to pick the winner of Michigan, Alabama over whoever beat Texas. Or oh, Washington. you went the other way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, but right. yeah, no, I mean, and, and that's pretty much what happened. I think Michigan's the best team, therefore, they're going to win. But Penix is. If he plays like he, if he bottles that up and we see that again and he's not getting hit a lot, which I mean, there's no reason to think he will be because he had an all year. They're going to have a really good chance. All right. Well, it should be fun unless their line does to Washington what they did against Alabama. In that case, the game's going to be over because they're going oh, to be yeah, yeah, get- no, if if Penix is hurried, they're not going to be able to lean on the run, especially if Dylan Johnson's hurt. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be pretty bad because Michigan is very good at the sit on you, wait for the field to tilt, and then maul you completely. Yeah, and talk about an offensive coordinator who's not afraid to hit the button that works over and over and over <laughs> yes. again. I mean, yeah. I, well, I want to see what the over under is for the number of rushing yards, Michigan rushing yards in this game. It's going to yeah. be a large number. All right, Bill. Well, we did exactly what we probably shouldn't have done. I spent the whole show with <laughs> you. Um, thanks for being with us here on this uh, beautiful second day of 2024. We wish you a happy 2024, Bill. We love the work you're doing. We wish everybody would pay more attention to it. They're already paying a lot of attention to it. But have fun with it, and we'll talk with you very soon. Sounds good. All right, guys, come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second half of this week's show. Uncharacteristically bringing in a, a second guest. We always have a guest in the second half, almost always, but we don't always in the first half. And in the second half, joining Cade and Shane is Brian Burke, longtime friend of the show, ESPN analyst, cutting edge football analytics creator, and all around great guy. He's also into track racing his vintage BMWs and working on whatever the latest model of his curiosity is each offseason. We're always ready to talk to Brian Burke. First, Brian, thanks for joining us and a very happy 2024 to you. Yeah. Happy uh, New Year. Thanks for having me. It's always so much fun talking to you guys. I was um, hurt, emotionally scarred the other week. I think you had Connolly on and you called in the Steve Martin guest, like the most frequent guest on Saturday Night Live. Oh, I can be the Tom Hanks. Yeah. If he's Steve Martin, who's number two? You're the Alec Baldwin, but that may be, you may not want to be Alec Baldwin. (laughs) Tom Hanks is a good one. I like Tom Hanks. Hanks. That's that's, That's a great one. 
Yeah. We we haven't added up our guests. You know, we're coming up on ten years in early March, and we don't we haven't done show numbers. We probably ought to go back and count our shows, but that means that we're well into the four hundred, and we could tally up our guests. Brian, you would be up there. Also, you and Bill share. By the way, he says hello to you. He, we y'all share <laughs> the the feature that you've been with us kind of from the beginning. And man, Brian, I remember this moment, and I think our first conversation. I thought it, I would put it in a top ten moment of the ten years when you talked about moving from your engineering and flying days to playing with statistics and models and just literally thinking about the world differently that you used to see it in black and white. And now you oh, see yeah. it probabilistically. I thought that was one of the best moments that we've ever had on the show. Yeah. So like the, the engineering, the kind of me mechanical type engineering, aerospace engineering I studied and especially in the Navy, it's very deterministic and the culture is the same way. Like it, it, you can't go on a flight and somebody crashes and dies and you're just kind of like, well, it's stochastic, you know, what, what are we going to do? God, like right. you have to, like you, you have to attribute causes and, and accountability and everything. So it, and when I did study statistics for the first time, it, it was kind of eye opening. I mean, all those kind of like correlation doesn't equal causation and, you know, this kind of randomness in in the world uh, that people learn when they're 18 or so I learned when I was 30. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you're lucky if you learn it when you're 18. I mean, I think a lot of people never get that kind of course. And then also, Brian, you probably paid more attention to it at age 30 than you would have at 18. I mean, it's not, not a, a lot of 18 year olds. Heck Shane teaches some of them at Penn. They'll come <laughs> in and, and, and they'll get all the best stats in the world, but they're not, they're not there for it for whatever reason. There are other things on their mind. Speaking of other things, on, go ahead, go ahead. Well, yeah, sports, I think, has um, injected that kind of statistical sophistication into the culture that I can – I remember the very first time I heard the word sample size in, like, popular media, and it was on, like, Mike and Mike in the morning. Wow. And I, I blew me away. I was like, we, yeah, we, we're making a difference. I mean, it, people know what, understand what that means now. And I don't, I don't never remember hearing anything like that before that. You know, it's a terrific point. And we, there, someone, someone ought to do a paper sometime or just a little piece sometime about the different statistical concepts that have broken through into the popular discourse through sports. I mean, you know, correlation is not causation. Um, that's the whole, you know, in the seventies, you could not watch a television, television, football, uh, tel football telecast without hearing about the number of times a quarter, a running back goes over a hundred yards and they win. Oh, um, regression just, to the mean is another. Well, yeah, yeah. Is, is it in there? Is it in there? Cause my God, that's the most important one. Do you think that's in the public discourse now? Uh, it, it, oh, you, you hear it on like create, you know, crazy places like first take now. Like, um, it, oh, it's insane. I, I think another thing too, is with the, um, kind of the decision analysis stuff that I've been focused on for a long time, like the, the process-based decision versus the outcome um, analysis. I mean, I was like this when I was younger, like um, go for it on fourth down or they failed, they failed to convert. You should have punted, you know, that yeah, kind of mindset right, right, is, right. is slowly dying off, which is, which is cool. Is it dying? Is it, what's the old line about, um, intellectual right. revolutions people don't change their minds that you they just you win the revolutions by the old guard dying that's there's yeah, an eloquent you, there's an eloquent way to say that science changes so like one, one funeral at a time, time or whatever yeah. yeah one funeral at a time yeah so the yeah. percentage of commentators nfl commentators who who are in each of those two camps would be interesting that is changing every year but it's still a healthy people a, a healthy percentage who would still make that mistake yeah um, oh yeah yeah 
So we're 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 going to end up doing a, an overtime segment for those of you who listen to the podcast. So when this thing wraps up on the SiriusXM side, we'll add a little bit because we got to Brian so late. Brian had the misfortune of being in the queue behind some college football commentary on the day after the best college football playoff day in the history, the 10-year history of the, of the game. But we've got interesting NFL things going on also. And uh, the two top spots have been clinched in both conferences, but there are still – I mean, the East Division in both cases is still in play, and they're super interesting with great teams, big implications for a team that has to go wild card versus gets to stay at home. What do y'all think, Shane and Brian? Are, and we've been away from the NFL for a couple of weeks because we've been away from the show. What do y'all think the most interesting situations are, observations from the last couple of weeks, questions for the next couple of weeks? Where, where's y'all's, where is your head on the NFL? Well, I think the most interesting storyline, kind of season-long story, has been the Bills. Right. They were they were virtually left for dead. Um and the statistical models, the the Massey Peabody's, the FPIs of the world, thought they were a very good team, kept them in the top five, top four. We've got them top three right now. And now here they are on the precipice of the number two seed, possibly. So that's or missing the playoffs, depending yeah. on yeah, it's it's a real they're on the nice edge right now. Yeah. Um and I think Josh. Josh Allen or Dak Prescott would be my MVP, which is kind of mm-hmm. counter to the to the consensus conversation. Um, I, I think Lamar Jackson will get it, but um, the it, I think those two quarterbacks, Prescott and Allen, are are just even more important to their team success mm-hmm. uh, than Jackson. Mm-hmm. Strangely, I know that's that, that is strange given how important he is and how much that offense is built around him. That's interesting. Well, isn't there some chance that, that um, they end up in the sixth seed, the bills and it would be, it would be bad luck for the Ravens, for example, who get the highest seed remaining after this first round. If the bills fall out the low seed, win their game and then travel to Baltimore <laughs> for that first division game. That would be all. I'm a Ravens fan. I, I, that would, I would not like that. Uh, we were, <laughs> we were eliminated. Would you Ravens fan rather, rather the Joe Flacco roll through with the Browns? <laughs> That'd be fascinating. Uh, oh my God. Wouldn't that's, you, I you, think, one of the fascinating storylines of the season. Yeah. Oh my Joe God. Not Flacco just this season, right? The dead. Yeah, not this yeah. season. This is like a decade worthy storyline. Are you kidding me? I mean, he's playing. Have we, this is like the best month of his career or some crazy thing? Probably what about the second to the playoff run? The playoff 12, run, yeah. right, right, right. Oh my God! Well, there you go. So, Brian Shane asked you that question. You, as a Ravens fan, would you rather get because you might get one of these two teams, the Flacco-led Browns, living the magical story, or the Josh Allen race from the dead Bills in that divisional round in Baltimore? I think the Bills are clearly the better team by a lot, um, mm-hmm. and I love I love Joe Flacco. Um, I've got a number five jersey <laughs> somewhere in the <laughs> house. Really, I didn't have you as a Flacco guy. You like those yeah. you like those DPI strategies, those, those, the, the deep DPI strategy as an offensive play. Yes, I do. I mean, I think <laughs> no, like the, the the there's the old adage. I think was a, a Texas coach. Uh, it's like when you throw the ball, you know. Two things, things can happen yeah. and two of them are bad. Yeah, but that's not true. There's one extra thing, and that's defensive pass interference. And yeah. that uh that breaks, you know, that breaks things open. Um no, he uh I I think Flacco, you know, these kinds of things can be a mirage, you know, like we we're ta- just talking about small samples and, and so on. Um, but I think there is something to it, just instinctively, intuitively, that he's 
you know, playing with, um, you know, without abandon, like he's got nothing to lose. So, you know, he, he was out of the league for a while and now he's just kind of got a second life. And so he's just letting it all fly, which is kind of fun. So, so I guess that's, I, that's part of the story. Right. And do you think that's legit? I mean, is that, is that's not, that's a great how, story. How do you think that's fair? Success, I get, yeah. Maybe to add some more layers to that. How, how much of his success and, you know, his was, is is a, a new attitude or a new new ex- regime or something like that versus just like the scheming somehow matching his skill set in a way that I mean he was on the Jets for several years and did nothing, and yeah, so I, think, I, I don't know how much how much is kind of scheme versus a change within himself. I think well Stefanski is a Kubiak disciple, and Flacco had his best season under Kubiak um, by a mile. I think it was 2014 when he was the coordinator in Baltimore. So I think that style um, suits him really well. Uh, Brian, how would you characterize? Of, how would you characterize that style? Uh, lots of um, play action, uh, deep mm-hmm. throws, uh, pretty simple concepts, a lot of outside zone runs, which mesh really, really well with the play action concepts mm-hmm. uh, because you, you don't you don't have. Um, you know, lineman, offensive lineman kind of going downfield, right? Which mm-hmm. you can't do on a pass. So um, I think it it just fits him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the, you guys, we, we barely scratched the surface and you guys named some fantastic storylines for the last week of the season and then pouring in to the playoffs. You know, just the name the wild card round, it just conjures great, great memories of childhood and just ra- ratchets up the level of interest in everything. That's what we can do this week. And we appreciate you guys listening for the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow in absentia, Adi Weiner in absentia, Shane Jensen, who's been with me here throughout. Brian Burke, thanks for joining us, man. Go follow Brian at ESPN. Bill Conley for joining us in the first half. Matty D for the boss man for running us, keeping us tight. And Deion Simpkins, of course, for all that you do for getting us on here. Thank you guys for listening. Stick around for the overtime show if you are on the pod. And we'll catch you next time. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Those of you listening to the podcast version, this is an overtime segment. Every now and then, when the universe cooperates, we put a little bit extra time on the show. And we wanted to this time largely because we didn't get enough Brian Burke. We brought Brian in after a marathon segment with Bill Connolly, which is, you know, we love both these guys. Bill just got the got the first seat because college football playoff was yesterday. We need more time with Brian. Have Shane for a few more minutes. So let's just see. What else interests you guys in the world of NFL? We named a couple of storylines there at the end of the show. What else you got? So we heard a little bit about Flacco. We heard a little bit about um, Josh Allen. Um, what about just the, tell me about the Ravens guys. So Brian says he's a Ravens fan. That's also my team of allegiance. It has been spectacular to see them come on here late in the year. While y'all, while y'all are talking about this, I'm going to start digging up some numbers. Rufus Peabody, Threw some good numbers at me just before the show started. Looking at game-level Massey Peabody ratings, it's an interesting way to look at the performance, not on the season accumulated, but 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 week by week. Because it feels like that team has come together. And it, one reason you might have more confidence in there being some coming together is that they're under um, a new offensive coordinator this year. And so, at least theoretically, it makes sense that it could take a little while for all those pieces to mesh. And goodness gracious, I mean, we've watched the we've watched the Lamar Jackson Ravens for years, and we've seen them hit some pretty high peaks, but mostly we've seen them, you know, 
they win games, they barely lose games. It's been a maddening roller coaster of an experience. And lately it's been, oh my goodness gracious, forget about that tension, forget about the drama. Let's just blow people out of the water. What do you think about the Ravens, guys? Well, it's not just a new coordinator, but the new coordinator brings a radically different approach. So it, 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 the change is much bigger than the usual kind of swap out from, you know, one one coordinator to the next. They run the same kind of West Coast offense. So talk and, about the differences. What is radically different about the differences? Okay, so Greg Roman, people might be familiar with him. Uh, he was coordinator for Kaepernick in San Francisco, for example. And then he was a uh, coordinator in Baltimore starting in 19, right? So the 2019 Ravens offense was like – I don't know what you would call it. It was either super innovative or super throwback, but it was really compressed uh, run first. Um, lots of motion, lots of qu- quarterback running was part of that. Uh, not a lot of zone uh, runs, just all kind of um, gap type plays, counters and power plays. And then um, the, the passing concepts were like super vanilla and I don't think they did a very good job with the passing game at all. And then, um, so Todd Munkin, uh, he, you know, he might be famous for the Jameis Winston offense in Tampa, which was like the super high variance, uh, kind of Mike Martz. <laughs> there's, there's a deep one for you. Um, kind of a high variance offense with, deep throws they spread the wide receivers from sideline to sideline and the concept is to just force the defense to defend the maximum amount of area possible and how much how much is do you, do you think that this like you know evolution is is just kind of the coordinator and and the different schemes they've also really helped their kind of posi- their, their 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 skill level at the wide receiver position this season is is much improved over previous seasons i mean they they lost mark andrews obviously yeah. they're they're all-star tight end, but Zay Flowers seems like a, a, a hell of a pick and they've got yeah. OBJ there as well. So how, how much is it like, you know, that the, you've got a coordinator coming in, but you've also got better personnel coming in at the same time. I, I think it's more than just the receiving court, but that's the, the one you see the most, but they are incredibly deep. I mean, they were down to, I think two healthy, you know, backups at cornerback against the dolphins against Tyreek Hill. And they just, you know, curb stomped the Dolphins last week um, throughout. So Andrews goes down and you've got Isaiah Likely, who is really popped. And and so yeah. I think it's 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 the depth. Um, but take the receivers, for example. I think Demarcus Robinson was their number one receiver last year. Now Nelson Aguilar is like their fourth uh, <laughs> option. And he's he's a mile, he's miles better than 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 Robinson. I know Robinson had a great game a couple couple weeks ago and uh, he's not, he's not, I'm not trying to say he's bad, but it has been night and day. You know, it's interesting that they, they, they just seemed reluctant to spend that kind of draft capital or free agent capital on those positions historically. And they've really turned a corner on that, but flip it around on the other side there, they run a little counter to the analytics cognizanti on where they spend money or where they spend draft capital on defense. I mean, they've, they've paid for and, sp- and spent high picks on down the middle, you know, the, the, the off the ball linebackers and the safeties. And, and there are some people who think that's actually one of the reasons for their success. So it's, it's interesting kind of pushing convention there. Can you talk about the defense, Mike McDonald's defense, which has really opened eyes against the dolphins and Niners in consecutive weeks. I mean, it's just unbelievable the performance. It seems anyway, yeah. what can you tell us about McDonald's defense? 
I'm not an expert on on the X's and O's um, to that level. I mean, it, it it was a difference from what they had before. So they had Wink Martindale, which is like a max blitz, man to man heavy defense, um, which made sense because they didn't have the pass rushers to really generate pass pressure on their own. So they had to blitz, and it, it was heavily reliant on top notch. You know, coverage corners and one-on-one man-to-man situations. And so they got away from that a couple of years ago, and now it's more of kind of the trend, uh, lots of uh, quarters coverage, cover four, um, and a lot more zone, and they're generating pass rush, but late. So I think the success of the team is due to their defensive backs, including the safeties, including the middle linebacker, Roquan Smith, is kind of the best one of the best linebackers in coverage. And so that I think is, is what's really um, helping them perform is with a lot of the pass pressures they're getting are kind of late in the play and they're due to their basically coverage sacks. Mm-hmm. Brian, how would you forecast the Ravens playoff success? And when we see the kind of improvement and separation to some extent that we've seen by these guys and the late season performances against really top teams, top teams in both conferences, it, it's easy to draw some confidence about what's going to happen in the playoffs. On the other hand, it always feels like we're just a, you know, a short hop away from Shane's coin flipping NHL playoffs. You know, to, what, what should we, we talk about, we talked in the late in the show about a probabilistic view of the world. You as a fan of the Ravens and yet analytics minded and a longtime viewer and seeing the new coaches, the new talent, like where do you end up and how you feel about their prospects in the playoffs? Well, I feel good. I mean, I, th- but like you said, um, the variant it's so much variance in one game, like the variance in one game, the standard deviation might be like 13 points. And the difference between say, let's say Baltimore matches up with, um, you know, like we talked about earlier, maybe they match up against uh, Buffalo or something like that along the way. And the difference between those two teams might be, you know, two points on the field. So, you you know, 13 game to game, and that's just the standard deviation. It's not like, (laughs) the limit. And, um, you know, so any one game, it, it's impossible to predict. Um, and, and yeah, I, I just, there's not, I don't want to stick my neck out, make any predictions. I hear, here's one thing I will say, like the, what's it, one of the things that, that I learned going back to the our earlier conversation was like the, the playoffs is not some like trial by combat where the gods of football are revealing to us who the best team is. The best team rarely wins the Super Bowl. I just think about it like this. You you have to win at least three games to be a Super Bowl champion, right? So let's say you were such a strong team that against any other playoff competition, you have a 70% chance to win. There's only a point that, that leaves you, you know, 0.7 squared is 0.49. So there's less than a 50% chance you even end up in the Super Bowl if you're the best team. And then mm-hmm. you got to win one more game against a really great team. Even then, it, so the, the Super Bowl champion is sometimes the best team, but more often than not, it, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's such a good point. It, we, we, ought to, we ought to have nice Sims run that tell us for different playoff structures what the chance is that the best team emerges. Of course, that depends on how much better the team is. Some years, the best team is significantly better than, you know, the, the, the next three or four. Sometimes they're all kind of bunched together. So you got to simulate that as well. But one of the things that goes in the favor of the Ravens in this case is that they're getting the bye. And we've only got this kind of first round one team bye thing for a couple of years now, but it's a distinct advantage. Just, 
just not just because of home field, but because you play one fewer game. And that's a just only one team in each conference gets that advantage. But it's to the extent that the best record means the best team, it's going to greatly increase the chance of the best team actually winning. Yeah, it basically doubles it almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you look at the Vegas odds right now, it's like uh, San Francisco plus 210, Baltimore plus 320, and then Dallas at like plus that thousand or something. So right. um, yeah, it's, it's a huge advantage. What do you, what, what do you guys think about the, 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 the odds still favoring the Niners, despite what the Ravens went out and did on the West coast a couple of weeks ago, not just beating them, but really kind of smacking them down. And yet I'd say, see them again in the Super Bowl, and they're going to favor the Niners by a couple of points. Well, I, I, think, I think, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, no, no. I, I, you I think I think for me, it's, it's partly about just, you know, the fact that the Niners still, despite the rate, I mean, certainly the Ravens stood out relative to them, but the Reiner, Niners have still stood out relative to the competition they're going to face in the playoffs. And the, I, I think most people probably see it as kind of like, you know, doubt, with the Eagles seemingly fa- fading a little bit lately, too, that you know, it's it's the competition that they're going to face on the NFC side. They're they're the really only kind of certainty I think out there. We we've we've got question marks about the Eagles. We've got question marks about the Cowboys, and you know the Lions are there as well as and salute them for being being you know winning their first division since 1993. But there's a lot of question marks there too. So I think you know uh, San Francisco is is kind of I don't know. It's it's like the the blue chip stock I guess of the NFC right now. Mm-hmm. I think you. You need to really discount head-to-head results, outcomes, uh, predicting games, and mm-hmm. it's even big, big, huge score differences. Because um, I'll tell you a quick, quick story. I have this game-level simulator, right? It, it, it simulates you know play by play by play by play. And when I, you know, and it's it's a Monte Carlo kind of test for decision analysis and stuff like that. And it's um. But when I troubleshoot it, I'll just run one game at a time and watch the play-by-play and make sure the scores kind of match the the distributions of actual scores. But but technically, both competitors, the two teams, are perfectly equal by definition. They're drawing from the same distributions. There's no home field advantage or anything built in. Yeah. And it's so funny to watch like 35 to nothing game, oh. and then the very next game will be oh, Brian, thirty so like 3 to 35 for the other team. And then the next game will be like six to three. And so like one game outcome, it is almost meaningless. You really have to look at the entire at 16 game or 17 games now is such Still, a tiny yeah. sample to begin with. Like just, you know, cherry picking one game. And I think if you dug in deep, I think the team that loses a, a matchup like that has the most to learn. Mm-hmm. And so they have the most to gain by having that previous experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's spectacular example, spectacular. So I, I agree with this last point because we tend to learn more from our losses, defeats, failures, whatever. But this other point on the on the variance, and we just you kind of have to have variance. You got to be dragged through and have your face rubbed in variance to really understand it and appreciate it. And maybe the best way to do that are these sims you're talking about. I had the same experience when we when we sim college football seasons, and. You know, if you look at the most likely teams to make the playoffs or whatever, they're kind of exactly what you expect. But if you look at any given draw and you see, you know, Texas Tech making the playoffs, you're like, oh, my God, really? And you're like, that must be a freak draw. And like, pull it up again. Now South Carolina's in the playoffs. So like, yeah. It just turns out the really odd thing happens with some 
with some unexpected frequency and right. you, and you miss it if you just look at the averages like the, we were talking about the 2012 Joe Flacco playoffs were like one of those draws like that the universe you know went down one of those rabbit holes where it just <laughs> gave right. us one of these that's right. Thank you God know, they did. But the, that's exactly and the Giants right. too. The both those Giants oh, Super Bowls against New England were uh, yeah. were kind of like that too. This is and Hall of Fame careers are made of such rabbit holes. Apparently, um, the uh, before we go, I want to give you the Massey Peabody game by game numbers on Baltimore. Just the hypothesis was that we would see a positive trend in the Ravens' performance over the course of the season. We talked some earlier about why that might be, but it has felt that way, and so. One of the things we used to do a lot of and we have gotten away from, but Rufus just ran them for me, were the were the game by game Massey Peabody numbers. So we can say like this game's performance translates into this much of an edge. Um, and if you just look at just the one game. And uh there's not as much of a trend as you'd think. There's probably a slight positive trend, but the best performance of the year was in fact Miami this past weekend. And one of the next best, a top five, was San Francisco the weekend before. And before that was a you know, top eight or so with Jacksonville. So these last three have really looked strong. But that said, the second best performance of the year was week seven against Detroit, which almost rivaled their game against Miami. The two of the top five or six were weeks one and three. And so they have had outstanding performances throughout the year. They've just, they haven't had the streak of them. Here's three really high ones in a row. These last three, these last three weeks, I think you're telling us, yeah, yeah, great. But take it with a grain of salt. You, these sims are going to feed you those every now and then. Yeah, I would agree. Like the in-season improvement and decline is a real thing. And I would, I've been studying this lately. And I think what I'm seeing is the Ravens are just on defense alone and probably improved one point over the course wow. of the season. Okay. And I think the offense is pretty close to that as well. Okay. The, but I think the maximum you're ever going to see a team kind of improve or decline on one side of the ball or the other within a season is about two points, like a game, two points per game, like, like in a point spread or something like that. And pretty much all the other improvement and decline comes in the off season with, with personnel and new schemes and new coaches and so on. Those are great. Those are great. Those are great points. That's a great observation. And it's, it's, it's sobering because that's small relative to the point spreads that we see play out on the field. And it goes back to your point of, look, you get huge point spreads off of games against equal teams. And so you've really got to move very slowly. Take just a fraction of the direction. Go just a fraction in that direction of what you actually observe. It goes back to the old maxim. Teams are never as good or as bad as they looked last Sunday, something like that. It's like just take a piece of that and move a bit. Yeah, I mean, look at the Dolphins, you know, putting up 70 points one week and then they, you know, 19 in in the last yeah. week in Baltimore. Right. So um yeah, very that has a variance for you. Okay. Well listen, we'll wrap up the overtime show, our third ever overtime show. Brian, thanks for indulging us here. It's a great way to start 2024. Always enjoy talking to Brian Burke. I'll chase him down. You can find him on ESPN. Always doing something interesting. We will look forward to talking to you more later in the year, Brian. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care.